Welcome to Bethel World Outreach Church. Our values are devotion, diversity, and discipleship. Devotion through honoring God by trusting His Word, praying, and worshiping together. Diversity by embracing God's heart for every nation. And discipleship by helping others follow Jesus. So join us as we're reaching a city to touch the world. Praise God. Thank you to our B56 and Miss Patty. Thank you, sir. Today we will be reading from the book of Judges, chapter 16, starting in verse 4. After this, Samson loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, Seduce him and see where his great strength lies, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. And we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, Please tell me where your great strength lies, and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. Samson said to her, If they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in an inner chamber. And she said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. Then Delilah said to Samson, Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If they bind me with new ropes that have not been used, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he, oops. So Delilah took new ropes and bound him with them and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And the men lying in ambush were in an inner chamber, but he snapped the ropes off his arms like a thread. Then Delilah said to Samson, Until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. And he said to her, If you weave the seven locks of my head with the web and fasten it tight with the pin, Then I shall become weak and be like any other man. So while he slept, Delilah took the seven locks of his head and wove them into the web. And she made them tight with the pin and said to him, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he awoke from his sleep and pulled away the pin, the loom, and the web. And she said to him, How can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You have mocked me these three times, and you have not told me where your great strength lies. And when she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him, his soul was vexed to death. And he told her all his heart and said to her, A razor has never come upon my head, for I have been a Nazarite to God from my mother's womb. If my head is shaved, then my strength will leave me, and I shall become weak and be like any other man." When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the lords of the Philistines, saying, Come up again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength 
left him. And she said, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in the prison. This is the word of the Lord. Selena reads scripture so well that it just seems to come alive. I asked her to read that central portion of this story, partially because many of us now don't even know the story. And for those of us who know the story, we haven't paid attention to all of the details of it. If you did, I think you probably saw something you've never noticed before. We are in the fourth and final sermon of our series, Villains. Villains. Those characters that we love to hate. Villains. The ones in the story that make us lean an inch closer, an inch closer, an inch closer as the play goes on, as the movie unfolds, because when they finally get brought down, we are rejoicing. We feel like when they're defeated, we're victorious. And we had nothing to do with it at all. Villains. Now, you might be asking, Why are we talking about villains in church? Now, you know the rest of the world right now is talking about villains. And can I say, just for a second, when we have our fall festival coming up in just a couple of days, if you're going to dress as somebody, dress as a hero. We don't need you dressing as villains. Why are we talking about villains in church? One easy answer. If it's in the Bible... It's there for a reason. And the Bible doesn't just give us these very human heroes with their flaws. This is a story, of course, that includes Samson, perhaps one of the most flawed so-called heroes there is. Really just shows us that God can use even a sinful man to hold villains at bay. But God puts the villains in there as well because, you ask, why? All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. None is righteous, no, not one. Even our righteous deeds, so we think, are as filthy rags before God. If you claim to be with, I'm just quoting scripture right now if you don't know it. If you claim to be without sin, you are a liar and the truth is not in you. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another because we recognize how common we are, and the blood of Jesus Christ purifies us from all villainry. Villains. Now, we've had three male villains in a row. We're ending with a female villain. We're not focusing on Samson. We're focusing on someone you may have never heard a sermon about, Delilah. 
Now, to understand how uh, Delilah relates to us, you need to understand something I've been trying to tell you. Every human heart is like a garden. And every gardener knows there's one thing that's in every gardener, every garden, whether we like it or not. In every garden, no matter how hard we try, there will always be... And the seedbed and the minuscule roots of the weeds of sin are in the hearts of every single one of us. And when we look at the villains in Scripture and let God see us, see them through His eyes, we then begin to see us through their stories. We're talking about villains. So we'll stop being them. That's what we need, Delilah. So now, if we're going to talk about Delilah, we have to understand what Scripture is saying about her and what it reveals about us. Delilah, the first thing it says about her is that there is a woman in the Valley of Sorek. Now, how many of you know where the Valley of Sorek is in a specific way? Not just, oh, over there in Israel somewhere. Admit it, when you read scripture, you read, a, you read a, a name that you don't recognize and don't know how to pronounce and just keep going to the next sentence. Oh, Sorek, that's nice. Now, what's the next thing? You just kind of skip right on. The Valley of Sorek, Sorek means choice vine. Just to the left on the map, if you look at the map in Israel, just to the left of Jerusalem, as you come out of those ridge lines and mountainous areas, there's a valley that follows a stream flowing from the mountains all the way to the west of the coast. There's a stream that runs through that valley that irrigates the whole. It's agricultural still to this day, filled with wheat fields, which Samson set on fire, filled with olive groves and filled with vineyards still today because the natural feature of the geography makes it an agricultural country. If you looked at the right-hand side of that map in the middle of Israel, there near Jerusalem, that's where the inhabitants of Israel were most numerous. If you look at the left-hand side of the map, follow that valley all the way to the left, that's where the Philistines were most numerous. Philistines is what they were called because it's the word for invaders. They invaded from Greece and were settling along the coast. The Philistines were oppressing the Israelites all the way down that valley in the middle there was a mix and a flow and a fight and a conflict back and forth between the Israelites and the Philistines a very important route so much so that the first railroad in all of the Middle East guess where it was built from Jerusalem to Joppa in the valley of Sorek that little name you've never paid attention to has a lot of meaning within it. And along the middle of that valley is where Delilah is found. A person caught in the conflict between two different cultures, two different sets of religions, two different gods, two ways of being. And we find something else about Delilah too, just in her name. Now Jezebel, any of you remember Jezebel? Who remembers Jezebel? Now, like that might be the most villainous, evil woman in all of the Old Testament. Jezebel, her name itself is evil. Jezebel, Baal for the evil, demonic worship in ways that we don't even want to describe. Her name itself had evil in it. But Delilah, no, her name isn't evil. It means delicate. In, catch this, Hebrew. 
The first two women Samson meets are given no name. The third woman, the only one that actually says he fell in love with, has a Hebrew name. He is large, strong, powerful, mighty. She is diminutive, small, delicate. Now, why is she in the middle with the Hebrew name? Another piece of the detail of the story, Hebrew stories, every, every word that they use has meaning, every word they don't use has meaning. You know what's not mentioned for Delilah in her story? Men. For the first woman that Samson meets, there's 31 men mentioned surrounding her. For Delilah, Now, in that ancient world, if you were a woman alone without a man giving provision and covering, you know what you had to do? Just try to find a way to survive. Perhaps Delilah was abused. Perhaps Delilah was abandoned. Those same things still happen today in our culture and leave women trying to find a way to survive. And sometimes the only way they find is a sinful one. Be careful how quickly you judge. Delilah finds herself caught in between worlds on a popular trade route where money flows through and men are going through away from home alone without accountability. Are you reading what I'm trying to write for you? I'm keeping it PG-13. Delilah finds a way to survive. She not only finds a way to survive, she has a specific specialty in that way of surviving. Why do you think the five Philistine lords know her? Why do you think they know she's the one to bind the only one who cannot be bound? Why do you think they think she's the one who can dominate a man, an entire nation has failed to dominate. That word is important and intentional. It's her specialty. It's what she does. Now, why does a delicate little child, perhaps one day dedicated in a moment like we had just a moment ago, a delicate little beautiful child end up in the place where Delilah was. I think Delilah has the female version of what you might call Napoleon syndrome. When you've been made to feel small and powerless and your life is out of your control, you want to find a way to never feel that again. I have seven questions for you that are all centered actually around one big question. Am I becoming Delilah? Am I becoming Delilah? Is the root or the seed of what grew in Delilah's heart also growing in mine? And if it is, how do I know? I'll give you seven questions to help you find out. Number one, do I need to be in control? 
Now, I gave you all that background on Sorek and Delilah and what flows out through the passage that Selena read so well, specifically so that you can see that she is a person who specializes in being in control. She doesn't just like it. She needs that. And she knows how to give it to those who will surrender to it. Control. You know what I am not good at being? Among many other things. A passenger. (laughs) I kind of think I'm a good driver. You know that about two-thirds of America thinks they're an above-average driver? That math doesn't quite work. I just hope you realize it. That the math doesn't work. But when I'm driving, all of my mistakes make sense to me because I understand why they happen. When somebody else is driving, why in the world would you do it that way? When, when I'm a passenger, I'm thinking, would you speed up a little bit? This is a space where you speed up. Oh, no, no, no. Now you slow down. Now you slow down. You sped up too late. And so now you should have slowed down because you missed the time when you should have sped up. Now's the time you slow down. Would you get a little farther away? I'm about, no, no, get a little closer now because they're going to get in. No, now get a little farther away. Oh, where's the break? Where's the break? There's no break down here. Where's the, I need a break in here. And then when I'm the passenger, you know, when I'm the driver, actually, let me put it that way. When I'm the driver, I notice every comment a passenger makes. You too? When I'm a passenger, I notice every comment I don't make. And the one I do make, I think, well, you should, I mean, how many things did I not say before I said that one thing? I mean, there were 17 things I could have said, but this is the first time I said something. Give me a little room. Do you need to be in control? That's just one little example of a tiny little form of the most minuscule root, but they grow into bigger things. When I'm in a meeting and it's not going the way I want it to go, but I'm not the one leading, do I try to take over? When a conversation is happening and I'm losing interest, do I start to insert myself in ways that don't have any relation to it? When somebody's in the middle of a sentence, but it seems to be taking too long, do I go ahead and finish it for them? When somebody else is designing a space in their life, do I tell them how it should have been? Because they shouldn't have done it that way. Here's the way you really ought to have done it. Do I need to be in control? If I do, the same route that started in Delida's little heart is there in me. Number two. Do I use people's weaknesses against them? Notice in the passage, it says the Philistine rulers say to her in verse 5, seduce him, that was perhaps his single greatest weakness if you read his story, and see where his great strength lies, pay attention to that, and by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him. Do I use people's weaknesses against them? You know, those who work very closely with me know that I don't hate personality tests. I just hate the way people tend to use them. If you tell somebody you're an ISTJ, the first thing they start telling you is how you should be more interested in people and get out of your shell and you're organizing everything so much because you're just a little bit almost OCD, just let a little mess happen over here. If you tell them you're the opposite, they'll tell you the opposite. And then how about that Gallup strengths test? 
The moment you tell somebody, well, my strength is intellection, is the moment they tell you you're not very practical and you should get your nose out of the books. The moment you tell somebody you've got woo is the moment they start thinking, well, that person's probably a little manipulative and I'm not sure I can trust everything they say because they're going to woo me into doing something I don't want to do. It's called a strengths test. And we're often searching for others' weaknesses because once we find their weaknesses, we feel And if I want to feel strong by making other people's weaknesses real clear, then there's something growing in me I don't want to let grow. I want to dig for people's gold, not pay attention to all the dirt. And I may have to move a ton of dirt to find a few pounds of gold, but boy, is that ever worth it in the mining industry and in ministry. I want to look for where the goodness of God is found in a human soul. Do I use people's weaknesses against them? Number three, do I wear people down to get my way. Oh, now we're getting into the toolkit of Delilah. So it's not just that she wants control and preys on weakness. Now the scripture is going to show us how to do it. You want to control people? You want to manipulate people? You want to be the one who has power over others? Here's one of the great ways to do it. Delilah, three times they're playing this binding game, this tying up game. Oh, Samson, the Philistines are upon you. Oh, aren't you powerful? Oh, why'd you do that again? Oh, I'm going to bind you. So there's a game being played. You understand, right? And they like this game. But listen to what she says farther down. Behold, you have mocked me and told me lies. Please tell me how you might be bound. Then in verse 13, until now you have mocked me and told me lies. Tell me how you might be bound. Verse 15, how can you say I love you when your heart is not with me? You've mocked me these three times, not told me where your great strength lies. And then she pressed him hard with her words day after day and urged him. His soul was vexed to death. She wears him down to get her weight. Now, Christmas is coming up. (laughs) If you're one of those people that nobody actually has to ask what you want for Christmas because they've already heard it 30 times, we might be talking about you. Now, if you got what I, but you know, you know what I want for Christmas. I only want one thing for Christmas. There's only one thing I'm asking for. I want a one different. Who's got it for me? Has anybody got it for me yet? Let me just say, I've actually done that before. Wearing people down to get my way. Every good salesman knows you don't take no for an answer. You're trying to sell them something they don't need. careful how far you let that run. Do I wear people down to get my way? Four, do I guilt others for not trusting me? <laughs> now you just come on, hold on just on for a second. 
Listen to what all has been growing. Each of these things, these roots branching out into other things, and all of this is happening, right? And then you're going to guilt them for not trusting you? If this is you, are you trustworthy? And come on, yes or no answer? <laughs> it wasn't a really confident answer. It might have been a disturbed answer. How many people are trustworthy? Half? Maybe on average? A quarter? 10%? You know how many? Come on, it's a Sunday school answer. We're in church. You should have known this one. We're not trustworthy. Our heart's deceitful above all things. If we've deceived ourselves, how can we help but deceive other people? Because we've already deceived ourselves. We think we're telling the truth. Are you trustworthy? How can you then guilt people for not trusting you? Why won't you trust me? Uh, because uh, you're not trustworthy. <laughs> and if they're not trusting you, perhaps, just maybe, just perhaps, there's something in your past behavior that has led them to believe that this might be one of those places in your life where you might be trustworthy elsewhere. They're not so sure here. If you're guilting people for not trusting you, you might be controlling people to get them to do what won't be good for them. And they're sniffing it. Delilah says, how do you mock me? Why don't you trust me? And then why do you say I love you? But not tell me. Number five. Do I let people feel close to me so I can use them? Do you see how this is going farther down the road of Delilah? We're traveling from the right-hand side of the map down the valley of Sorek towards the coast of the Philistines. And we may not be fully at her house yet, but we're on our way. Do I let people feel close to me so I can get what I want, so I can use them. It never says Delilah said to him she loved him, but she does say, how do you say you love me? Samson's heart had been given over, and she was using that for her own gain. You know what I'm troubled by as I was pondering this and thinking about this the last two weeks? I'm troubled by the number of people in my life that I used to be closer to because we used to work together more closely that I've lost contact with. Now, you can't stay in touch with everybody, though you try, but I do want to ask myself the question, Dave, do you have disposable relationships? Do you? Now that they don't have something to give you, are you done? Do you want to be that way, Dave? Now, the screws are getting a little bit too tight for me. Can I release them a little bit? <laughs> we need an off-ramp at some point from the Delilah Highway, don't we? Would you tell me how to get off this road? I got two questions left after this one, but let me give you at least one off-ramp. Do I let people feel close to me so I can use them? There's another character in Scripture very different from Delilah. Do any of you remember Ruth? There's a whole book given to her. The book of 
Ruth, if you're not familiar with it, go read it at some point. But Ruth doesn't let Naomi feel close to her, her mother-in-law, just so she can use her. But Naomi thinks she does. Naomi, when Ruth's husband is dead, says, what else can I do for you, three daughters-in-law? All of my sons are dead. I have no one to provide for me. I'm going to go back to my people in Israel. You stay here. Find husbands for yourself here. I get it. I have nothing I can do for you anymore. And this was a relationship you had to have to be with my son you can forget about me and only Ruth says "Uh uh-uh no your people will be my people your God will be my God you've done for me I'm going to try to do for you but even if I can't do good for you I'll be with you in it and she knew that meant perhaps to poverty perhaps to death. You want an exit ramp from the Delilah Highway? Take Ruth Street. It's a beautiful place to live. Number six, do I play both sides? Talk to this person in the conflict and say one thing. Talk to this person in the conflict, say another thing. Talk to this group and act like this is my group. Talk to that group and act like this is my group. And if both sides heard me say the same thing, the thing I said to the other person, neither one of them might like me. Do I play both sides? Delilah standing there with the lords of the Philistines, the most powerful one among the coastal people, and then turning to Samson, the judge of the Israelites, the most powerful one among the mountain people and she plays one side and plays the other side and then plays one side and then plays the other side all for her own benefit she keeps men hidden in inner chambers and they don't come out I think she's still playing that game now listen if I bind him and then we play the game but he breaks loose you stay there he'll kill you he'll kill all of you but we see nothing in the story that he killed him he kept playing both sides maybe I'll never be able to bind him and I'll just keep Samson's love But if he breaks loose, I'm going to be a millionaire. 1,100 pieces of silver times five in Nashville money is equivalent to about $15 million. Now, I asked Holly this week. She gave me permission to say this. It was a funny moment. It was just on the side. I just thought I'd ask her just for fun. I said, honey, would you ever betray me for $15 million? And she said, hmm. she just let it sit there and I said no honey no 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 okay would you really do something to hurt me for 15 million (laughs) dollars she let it sit that way all the way was it last night or this morning sometimes she finally let me off the hook okay okay I never do that to you maybe 20 million no (laughs) it's a lot of money she's going to be in control forever now if she gets that money. But if Samson's going to win today, and he can kill a thousand Philistines with a single jawbone, and she's in control of him, she'll be in control forever that way. Let's just see how this plays. And I'll turn whichever way I need to. You want an exit ramp from Delilah Highway, try Rahab. If you haven't read that story, it's in the book of Judges. Rahab also 
A woman who has found a way to survive in an unsavory way has spies come to her, but she says, no, I see where the Lord is. And the fear of God was greater in her than the fear of a certain group of people that were around her. And she staked her claim in the love and fear of the Lord. And because of her faithfulness and because of Ruth's faithfulness, both of them became great, 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 great grandmothers of Jesus Christ. Their faithfulness brought them into the story of redemption that we enjoy today. Seventh question, last question, do I betray others to benefit myself? If I have to answer yes to that one, I'm not becoming Delilah. I am Delilah. That's where we get the whole phrase, you just threw me under the bus. Backed it up, beep, 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 ba-dum, ba-dum. Put it back in drive, and kept on going your own way, no matter what it did to me. Why are you throwing me under the bus? If I betray others to benefit myself, even in small ways, Delilah's same roots and tendrils have grown so much, it, my garden is now overgrown. Thanks, Clay. I have a little tool here that my father-in-law introduced me to. This little garden tine, or whatever it's called, I don't even know the name for it. I, I just wore one of these out using it so much week after week after week. The bottom fell off of it, and I think the top might have cracked, and so I bought a new one. Haven't got the sticker off of it even yet. I tried it, made my hand sticky, so I left it on. This is my tool for my garden. My father-in-law coming down when I first started getting into gardening, he's a great gardener, especially flowers. He showed me that if you take this little tool and just go through where all those weeds grow, and you go over and loosen up the soil, just loosen up the soil. It takes out all the roots and lifts them up. When I first tried to have my kids help me with gardening, I'd try to have them weed and they would just snap off the top of the plants. Just pluck, 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 pluck. And this is a day later, those weeds are already growing fast. They couldn't get down to the roots with their little fingers. But if I had this in my hand and I go through and just loosen up that soil, then they could come behind and do the same plucking maneuver and get all the way down to the root and stick it in the bucket. And just boom, 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 boom. It didn't take very long. You do the whole garden around your yard. And if you did it regularly enough, the weeds never took over all that today has been has been my attempt to give you a tool but here's the gospel Jesus says I am the vine you are the branches my father is the gardener I just want you to put these seven questions in the hand of God I think we have them on two slides here. They'll put them up one and then the next. You can take a snap a picture of them right now. What I want you to do for the next four weeks, once a week, put 15 minutes on your calendar. Go through each question, ask God to help you answer it honestly. Let him just turn over the soil in your heart and say, oh, look, right there's a weed. Got to get that one. Oh, look, right there, there's a weed. Just got to get that one. Oh, look, right there's a weed. Just got to get that one. Ask him to help you pull it up by the root. He's the gardener. You don't have to keep trying harder to do better and beat all the things in your heart that you can't win against. And some of you, if you've never had a gardener work in your soul at all, <laughs> let me just tell you, this might not do it. You probably need a tiller. That's what we call conversion. Being born again. 
Your garden doesn't just need a touch-up. It needs to be made new. Would you stand with me? The great gardener of our souls has been gardening souls for centuries. Patiently, graciously, mercifully for all who are willing pulling up the weeds that threaten to turn us into villains. Would you bow your heads with me? If the Spirit is speaking to you and you know that you need the gardener to do some work in your heart, whether this is the first time you've asked him to do it or the hundredth time you've asked him to do it, I just want you to lift your hands up to him as I pray over you. Father, we ask that you be the gardener of our souls now. With lifted hands, we're saying there's some things that need to be loosened up within us that are taking hold. There's some things that need to be pulled out. We call that sin. And we know that the greatest cure for the desire for control is to make Jesus Lord. Jesus, you need to be in control. So we ask that you would help us to to do even that. We can't do it on our own. Faith is a gift. It's not something we muscle up. So you can pray these things to him in the quietness of your own heart and mind. Lord Jesus, take control of my life. Heavenly Father, I ask you to guard my soul. Forgive me my sins and remove the root of them. I pray that you would go through my life and my heart and remove every last bit of it until I can be a beautiful garden for you. I want people to drive by my life and say, who's the gardener of that? So that I might give you glory. Don't make me evil. Don't let me be evil. Make me beautiful. Make me glorious for your sake. I surrender to you. I want to live your way, no matter what it costs me. Help me to get on one of the exit ramps from Delilah Highway. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.